Welcome to the WattPod, a journey into the world of the most exciting clean tech startups, powering the energy transition and our carbon-free future. We will learn about the journeys of these companies and their founders, their backgrounds, the hurdles they face, those they have overcome, as well as the breakthrough innovations they are delivering. We will also explore what investors and innovators are looking for as we head towards a cleaner, more distributed, more flexible energy system. What innovations and investments are required to ensure access to cheap, reliable, and responsible energy? Our guests bring a range of expertise and insights that will help us understand what developments are taking place. I look forward to our discussions with them and this journey with you. Today, we are joined by Anne Foster, Director and Head of ESG at Quinbrook Infrastructure Partners. Anne has extensive experience in renewable energy, digital energy, and data data centers, having invested or advised on over $3 billion globally in energy and infrastructure projects. Anne, thanks for joining the WattPod. So glad that you're here. Let's let's start off with an intro to Quinbrook for those who, who may not be so familiar with the company. And really your role, particularly in terms of, of where Quinbrook are, are directing investments at present and going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, Quinbrook is an independent um, investor, um, specifically dedicated to investments that support the transition to net zero. Um, so that's across the full suite, kind of ranging from your more conventional, what we now call conventional solar, um, batteries, wind, uh, you know, and, and other generation fleets, um, as well as moving into the digital energy space, um, uh, data infrastructure, um, you know, and, and pretty much anything that can uh, businesses that can support our tradition, uh, our transition to net zero. Uh, effectively, what's happening is we have grids that are rapidly decarbonizing. Um, we are rapidly getting increases in, um, you know, in, in solar and wind generation. Um, but fundamentally, these are intermittent generators. What that means is they're not on all the time. Um, you therefore can't have them on demand, and it, it's creating, um, you know, a fair, a fair few problems in the grid in terms of security, security, reliability, um, uh, voltage of the grid, keeping that actually balanced because once you take your coal plants offline, you lose the synchronicity in the grid. Um, and the, the overall management of it, you've gone from a very vertically integrated structure um, to one that is in, you know, is different locationally, is different in the types of, of fuels, uh, in the types of energy, when and how it's produced, um, and managing to coordinate that forecast, that um, optimise that and, and, and really manage it. Um, there's a lot of tech involved in, in that transition. So there's a lot of really exciting stuff going on. Um, and uh, and Quinbrook has been investing in energy, well, the founders of Quinbrook since, gosh, the kind of 1990s. Um, and, you know, globally, they set up uh, Novera, which was a company listed on the uh, London Stock Exchange, specialising in, in wind and, um, I think, gas and uh, waste to energy or similar. Um, they then uh, sold that business and uh, started up, a, you know, moved into the funds management uh, area and, and then eventually set up their own business, Quinbrook. Um, the difference, I think, is that, a huge amount of the team comes from that operational background. Like I've got team members who I swear could, you know, pretty much build a solar plant themselves if they, you know, a wind farm if, if they needed to. Um, so I think that's a, you know, it's a, it's a key area as you have a, a, an area where a mass of new money is suddenly being directed. Um, and uh, a lot of people who um, potentially haven't had, um, 
you know, 20 years of experience or, or over 20 years of experience in the, in the energy markets. And that's, that's I guess, where really we, we play into. Um, and what we do is we, we look at, right, what are, the, what are the big emerging gaps in the market um, and where can we use renewable energy where maybe we've never used it before? Um, where can we, you know, can we invest, you know, there's green hydrogen, there's water, there's agriculture, there's steel, there's construction. There's a, a host of new areas where, um, you know, it's what I call a delimiting factor. Um, as the cost of energy goes down through renewables, um, you suddenly have the ability to power things that previously we couldn't power before because energy was too expensive. Um, so as we, we move into, at times of the day, surplus energy um, production, um, so middle of the day, strong winds, um, rather than curtailing energy, what can we actually do to, to put that to, uh, to, to best use? Um, so that's a, you know, that, that's a lot of the areas that, that we look at. We invest very early on. Um, we're not, you know, development isn't something that we're fearful of. In fact, it helps us because it means that we can control the outcomes. We can control the contracts. Um, we can control, um, uh, you know, we, we can control the equipment that's used and, and make sure that it's, it's all up to the highest standards um, possible. And, you know, we, I guess, work alongside, you've got a lot of big pension funds, um, and, and other big investors really going into the renewables energy market right now, which is brilliant. And it's what we all want and need. Um, and they're able to do the, the massive offshore wind farms um, and, and that type of thing. Whereas, um, you know, which gives you that, that bulk of energy supply. Um, whereas we often look at, right, where are the gaps in the market as well as having, um, you know, we've got, I think uh, what we believe to be the world's largest solar and battery project um, going ahead in the Nevada desert. Um, and, uh, you know, other, other projects, BPPs, virtual power plants and, and other projects um, around, uh, around the world. There's a huge amount of information in there. Thanks, Anne. And I think one of the really interesting things about it is just the scope of, of projects that you are looking at there. And I think you've unpacked that quite, quite a lot, but maybe something we can dive into. I think it comes from, you know, from the experience that you mentioned around the founders and, and, you know, the, the length of time that they've been involved in this market at Quinbrook for me is a very forward looking asset manager. You know, it, it's not a very passive player in this space. Would, would you agree to that? Yeah. And you look, you can't be, as I said, there's, you know, you constantly have, um, thankfully new money coming into the space and it's 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 a space that that in the past particular year or two has had a huge uptick um uh in interest you know europe's been there for a long time but you know us australia and other countries are, are starting to um you know to, to really catch up and us has been there for a long time too and, and so is australia but in in terms of the the real scale and the real interest mm. um and to you know you have to keep saying okay well where's where's the next gap Where's the next hole? What, what does this market look like? How is this market actually going to operate? Because it's an entirely new energy market to what we've seen historically. Um, how is it going to operate? And, and what do we need to do to make sure we're investing in the pieces that make it fit together and work? Um, and that is fundamental. You cannot just put a mass of wind and solar on the grid and it functions properly. It just doesn't. Um, there's, a, you know, there's a huge amount of other bits and pieces and really exciting other bits and pieces. Um, that, you know, kind of need to, to go in there. One of the things that's always, I find, you know, to give you an example is, is really exciting. is just that thought of, you know, right, you've suddenly got, an, you know, a, an electrified or largely electrified um, community or, or housing community or otherwise. You've got people charging their cars. Potentially you've got vehicle back to grid again. You've got people creating their own energy, storing their own energy. Um, you've got businesses who are storing their energy or, or you know, renewable energy or, or, uh, or generating it. Um, and how do you how do you share that energy? How do you 
move that energy between players so that you're you're using it as optimally as you can. And there's a whole suite of AI that needs to be involved there because the data sets that you're using with energy are, are incredibly complex and the trading that's going on, it's incredibly complex and it's much more complex than other sets of data um, that, that you know we've looked at from both the data protection side, but also from just the mass of data, the type of data, the lack of uniformity of the data. Um, so, you know, when you, you start to look at, um, at, at using that to, to kind of feed AI to be able to manage those energy flows and the trading and the buying and selling, um, it becomes incredibly complex. And then you're backcasting and saying, right, what have, what, what have this family used or what's this company used in energy? What are they going to use next week? What happens when you start to bring cars involved? What happens when the, the cloud cover comes and the sun stops shining? So you're for, having to forecast weather as well as usage patterns. And, and it's a whole, there's, there's so much data in there and, and so much in terms of just behavior and, and how it's changing. And I think, um, you know, that gives you an idea of, I think, how exciting the energy industry um, is, is becoming, you know, as it, as it you know, it, it's exciting because it's, we're making net zero feasible, um, but it, it's also exciting from a, a technology um, kind of, you know, tracking, tracing energy, um, use of blockchain, use of AI, and uh, all these other fun words that people like to throw around, um, but they are genuinely of, of a, a massive help to the energy industry. Yeah, and you've mentioned digital AI, software, blockchain, you know, lots of sexy words in there as well. And Quinbrook really is at that cross section of, of technology and infrastructure. It's not just a, a large passive player putting funds into, you know, uh, the next grid scale solar project. Could you maybe just give us a little insight into when you're talking about digitalization and software, what are you guys working on, um, whether internally or with partners? Um, to, to help move that transition forward in that space? Um, I should say, I mean, we absolutely do do grid scale projects because they're the, the hub of it, right? So doing your big grid scale solar, you know, wind and, and otherwise, they're, they're the hub of it. You need that generation, particularly storage, right? We need storage. We need storage to stop curtailment um, and we need storage to, to, to make it um, dispatchable, reliable, accessible. So we, we absolutely do um, do those fundamentally kind of core parts of renewable energy and that's that's the, the, the hub of our fund. Um, but we do all these other parts to a, a lesser extent because they are what's going to make those generating and storage assets work optimally. Um, and you know and 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 do do what they need to do in in, in the best way of doing it um, when it comes to the digital energy space um, our way of of working at it is to i guess try and um collaborate as much as we can with a lot of other players um, what you'll find when you start to look around the world is that there are different universities who are really streaking ahead of the, with this globally there are different um uh, there are different groups. There's a lot of European groups um, that have, you know, they've, they've had um, digital tracing mechanisms. They've had renewable energy credits. They've had other, other areas for a long time. Um, and so you've got a lot of experience there that's seen what's worked in the past, what hasn't worked, what's kind of started and then failed or, or kind of dwindled off or otherwise. Um, so one of the most important things is for, you know, to keep working with, um, you know, bigger groups. So we, we do a lot of work with universities um, and, and support some of the universities. We do a lot of work with, uh, you know, or, or at least are, are part of and members of, of quite a few um, different groups. So, you know, for example, the inevitable policy response, which is looking at, right, where does policy go in terms of, of driving, um, uh, you know, the, the shift to, to clean energy. Um, energy tag, which is uh, a group that's really looking at, okay, how can we track and trace renewable energy? So that if, for example, if you're saying, right, we're selling green hydrogen, 
How do you know it's green hydrogen? Um, how can you actually prove that what you're buying um, is, is green? Um, and understanding the carbon intensity of, of what you are doing, often you're going to have a mix. You might be partly procuring from a solar or wind farm, partly procuring from the grid. You might have a bit of storage, a bit of backup otherwise. And, and you know, it's really a case of measuring, okay, what, what really is the carbon intensity of, of, um, of what I'm creating um, and the energy that I'm using? Um, so that's 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 where, where we sit. We also invest in, in businesses. Um, perhaps they're coming out of universities or otherwise, um, but businesses at, at, um, at stages where... Um, They've got a, a great solution um, in supporting that optimization and, and um, optimization and, and use and dispatch and control of energy um, or forecasting, <clears throat> and then we'll work with them um, to, to support their growth. And we work really closely with our portfolio companies as well. It's not kind of a, a set and forget. We don't invest and you know turn up to a board meeting um, once a month or once every two months. Um, and that's it. We are there kind of day in, day out working with them. Um, and I think particularly in my area, I, you know, the, the ESG is um, fundamental to what the firm does. We are, uh, you know, fundamentally a, a, a climate investor, um, building resilience mitigation and fundamentally the broader ESG suite. We don't, um, you know, all pieces of, of ESG um, uh, come into play, particularly on the, the social impact um, kind of human rights and, and governance and other pieces, as well as the environmental suite. So we are working day in, day out with our portfolio companies um, to help them, um, you know, kind of be the best that they can in that area, which interestingly I find is um, often incredibly engaging, um, particularly for the younger workforce. They want to be working for companies that are genuinely trying to do the right things, not just kind of putting policies in place and saying they're doing it, um, but genuinely trying to create better businesses, um, which is great to get that feedback when you kind of hire new people in and, um, you know, that's that's what they want to be involved with. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that talent. I think, you know, how you're attracting it. And I think that ties in with what you're talking about with universities as well. But I think, firstly, you know, it's just, it's such an interesting and exciting area where what you're talking about where you have a large portfolio of solar wind battery assets you know intermittent renewables that are being um that are being supported by storage solutions uh but then you're talking about this optimization layer which may only be a smaller percentage of your of your portfolio but potentially one of the most exciting areas mm. where, you know when you're working with these universities etc how you know what does the pool of talent look like to you um, for the people that are working on these these projects, how do we attract more people, you know, that may be yeah. looking to get into software development and working for, you know, the likes of Google or Facebook or something into the energy space? And yeah. just a final piece is, where do you see, um, you know, I think the US and UK are obvious places, but, you know, where do you see that depth, depth of talent that may surprise you as well when you're working with these universities and how does Australia compare in that space? Yeah. Um, I'm going to answer the the last question first. The talent is everywhere, right? It's I haven't yet seen necessarily a particular market um, that is is just so far streaks ahead. Europe has the right mentality, I think, and they have for a long time. So you'll simply tend to find um, in Europe that there is there is a lot going on. There's also more of a sharing mentality in Europe. Um, I guess it's, it's kind of coming up, you know, because you've, you've had the European Union, you've, you've done this in the past, there's a lot of, right, we're going to share ideas, we're going to come up with a solution together, 
Whereas in, let's say, the US, you will often find uh, potentially it's a bit more, right, how can I commercialise this and make a business out of it? Um, you know, you might find two people doing the same thing. In Europe, it's a kind of non-profit or it's government supported, um, whereas um, in the US, it might be commercialised. But when you when you look at the raw talent, um, it is it is you know, I guess coming from everywhere, I think in Australia, we have that age old thing where we have phenomenal um, scientists, phenomenal brains. Um, and we just don't have a funding pool in that those early stages that are as big as, as the US, as Israel, as, you know, Europe, as the UK, um, you know, Singapore, you know, other areas where, where they've got some, some great incubators and, and great um, not even incubators, just angel investing, early stage investing going on. Um, and it is an area that Australia has has always been weak. I think one thing I've been pushing for um, for quite a while now is for more incubators to really focus on, um, I, you know, green tech, clean tech. You kind of tend to call things clean tech anymore. Um, but, you know, the, 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 the energy use um, of, of, uh, of digital, of AI, of blockchain, because, you know, I've, I've seen... Um, in big incubators call out and they're doing space tech and they're doing everything, but they, they're not calling out for, um, for climate tech, um, which is, is so fundamental. And I think that's, um, I think that's one of the biggest things is we, you know, we need to let um, the young digital, you know, people who are going into universities and, and, and entering the workforce um, in the digital space, there is so much out there that where the energy industry needs those brains, that technology and those lifts. And, you know, the Googles of the world, they're, they're, they're there and they're trying. We've seen, you know, quite a few groups kind of spin out of um, DeepMind or others um, that, that, um, that Google are doing, um, uh, as well as New Year, Amazon, Microsoft. They're all, you know, well and truly trying to, to, to do this within their own housings. Um, but, you know, it is something where I think a lot of people aren't aware how much the energy space um, needs, you know, needs people who are going to be experts in digital energy and coming up with solutions across AI, um, you know, and, and across a, a suite of other areas. So I think that's the main thing I would encourage. And I've, I've spoken at conferences where I've, I've said this and people said, wow, you know, there's whole suites of people involved in, you know, specifically there in AI. And they're like, wow, I had no idea that energy was at that point. And, um, and I think that's, you know that that's um that's a key message it is it is complex as i said the data everything is incredibly complex um and so it's it's incredibly exciting and and you know what what we're going to need to do with it and just the basic premise on how the new energy markets and how cities are going to run um when you have these incredibly connected um iot devices throughout the home the you know electric cars um or vehicles or green hydrogen cars or vehicles uh you know uh, much more electrified transport logistics um the you know the, the whole suite of it um and it, it becomes incredibly exciting but we need people we need uh we need the brains there um coming up with the the solution and the tech um you know for it. and again big oil majors as well um are out there um former oil majors they're probably more of them would like to be called renewable energy majors now um than oil majors they're trying um but you know again a lot of them will have incubator hubs as well um that are are trying to um trying to push um for, for some of these solutions um sorry now I've it's really about it's really about getting the message out i think to to those new grads that are coming through and, and enticing them with the excitement that is in the energy space yeah yeah and knowing they're needed people just don't know that it's a space that they can go into and that needs them uh, a lot of the time yeah and i think in, in particular and you know 
when you're talking about enticing talent into into the market as well, um, it's re- you know there is a huge gender gap as well in the energy market. Um, you know, I from what I understand uh, from the last research that I did is that it's around you know it depends on obviously the country etc. But it's around two percent of all um, engineering grads uh, are female. So how do you in, in, entice more women into that space as well? Yeah. Um, so similarly across the energy industry, you're looking at, I think somewhere, you know, kind of two to two to five percent. And also when you're looking at BAME, um, it's it's similarly um, you know, a, a fairly low statistic across the overall market. So um, we look at, at kind of both areas. How can we how can we improve um, the you know the 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 numbers of people of women of, of people coming from um you know different backgrounds different modes of thinking um into you know into businesses and it starts at the school level um it starts even before you get to university it starts with you know people that knowing that it's even an option right um to to get into these areas it starts with giving people access i'm, I'm always constantly thinking on how can we give how can we give entrepreneurs more access, for example, when you don't live in, you know, California um, or Israel um, or, you know, or, or a hub? How can you give that opportunity to, to more people in, in general? Um, and how can you give people an opportunity to know about finance? I had no idea about what finance or banking or anything was when I was growing up. I had to be introduced to it um, by someone. But it, it's not always unless you grow up in a family or know about it, that it's, it's something that a lot of people fall into. So one of the areas that you start is you start at the school level. Um, you start by introducing people to the concept, to, to what the industry's like, um, your work experience, that type of thing. There are programs in London that are trying to help do that. Um, uh, the Talk About Black program um, is, uh, the diversity project is, is currently, you know, actively trying to do that in, in the UK. Um, and, you know, so you set up programs like that um, out of universities, again, you know, recruiting out of universities um, can be in- incredibly successful. I think universities are getting, I think, better um, at, at trying to entice a, a more diverse range of, of women um, into, into the universities and also, you know, broader diversity. Um, I know in the UK, there's, there's been a big push into, I believe, with the US as well. Um, you know, and, and similarly, I think Australia's also, you know, has typically been relatively strong simply because um, I guess we've got a, a more, uh, you know, we take our university intakes from a lot of our state schools um, rather than relying on the, the private school system as much, which, which brings its own form of, I guess, you know, greater diversity in itself. Um, but it, it, it starts there. But what people forget about is... Um, there's a lot that has to happen once you've hired someone. Um, you have to create a, a company um, that supports people from different backgrounds. Um, you have to support a company that supports people who, you know, maybe have other commitments. That might be family. It might be kids. It might be parents. It might be cycling. I don't know. But, you know, whatever someone's particular area um, of, of commitment is, as well as work, that you actually provide a workforce that supports that. So you aren't forcing people out of the workforce. Um, because they have something else that interests them in life um, or something else that they need to to spend time on, which I think is a classic finance issue, the kind of, you know, the the classic question you get asked when you enter banking, do you have a partner? Um, Well, if you do now, you're not going to in a few months because you won't have time to see them. Um, You know, that that kind of mentality um, just isn't, it isn't helpful, it isn't efficient. Um, That's not smart business. 
um, you know, when you're you're kind of, you know, doing that. Whereas I think, you know, business realising that actually giving people flexibility, we all know we can work from home now, at least to some extent. I've done it for a while. It's not optimal. You, you know, I think an office environment is incredibly helpful as well, particularly for younger staff. Um, but giving people flexibility of, of when or where they're working um, and giving people a culture where you aren't going out, um, you know, you don't create a, a going out um, mentality where only certain people get invited or, or otherwise. Those are all the pretty basic things. Um, but I think in terms of really attracting people, it is incredibly hard. There are not many women out there. Um, and there is a lot of competition um, to, to try and, um, you know, even out the, the numbers a little bit. Um, and and give people an opportunity that maybe they otherwise would have. Um, and what that means is, but when companies going out there recruiting, for example, you know there are classic classic in, you know indications like uh, statistics saying that women won't apply, you know, for a role where they can't fulfil eight out of the ten requirements, whereas men will. For example, that's one kind of study that's been done. Um, studies looking at people where they have. Uh, you know, subconsciously um, screened out people whose names on a CV didn't really sound like their name. Um, you know, it wasn't a name that they couldn't necessarily pronounce or were comfortable with or that type of thing. So there's a, you know, you, you have to start by looking at those those subconscious and, and who's your pool? Who's the pool of people? Are you actually going out and finding the right pool of people? Um, or have you just, you know, done the normal means, put out a job description and whoever's come to you? Because we've found at times that we will only get men applying for jobs. Um, and we've actually had to go back and say, okay, well, why aren't the women applying? Is it because they're genuinely not there? Is it because they, they actually are at the same level as, as a lot of the guys who are applying, but they don't think they're at that level and they're, they're kind of talking themselves out of it? Um, is it because they're not convinced that we're going to give them maybe the flexibility that they need or, or otherwise? So um, it's one thing to, to go and headhunt and go and to, to find women, but it's, or, or you know, or anyone, um, but it's another thing to, actually genuinely create a work environment that people want to join. And I'm not just going to say women or people with families, but it's, it's anyone who has, um, you know, things they want to do, um, you know, as, as, as well as at work. And that doesn't mean that they're any less efficient. It doesn't mean that they're any less dedicated by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, often they're highly efficient um, because, you know, they have other things that, that, you know, that they're also doing. So I think it's a, it's a long game um, to get more diversity in the industry, um, but it takes work. It isn't, it isn't just something where you can snap your fingers and say, fine, instead of hiring men, we'll just hire women. It doesn't work like that. Um, it, it takes looking for women. It takes um, giving people the right environment, keeping them, you know, once someone's there um, and, you know, maintaining a, you know, a workforce that is, is family friendly. Um, you know, and, and Quinbrook is one of those places that, um, you know, I've found that, um, I think via nature of the founders and their own backgrounds, their own, the work of, you know, their own spouses, um, you know, who are, you know, incredibly, um, you know, kind of powerful in, in, in their own um, sense and in their own work. Um, you know, it has created, uh, you know, a really good environment, um, you know, for that. But uh, yeah, it's hard. That's great. <laughs> so for all, all the women out there, send your CV to, to Quinbrook, right? <laughs> um, just one thing I, I um, wanted to go back to as well is you, you started talking about some of the, the companies that you work with and whether that's through investments or partnering with or, or um, you know, or, or collaborating with on, on some of your, your projects potentially. Um, yeah. You know, for, for a business person, an entrepreneur that's out there that's building a business, Quinbrook is, is not a VC, but 
do do you invest in earlier stage companies? How mature do those companies need to be um, for you to seek investment? And what what is, you know, what what are the steps that someone should take to work with a company like Quinbrook? Yeah, look, I think there are a couple of ways that we work with um, businesses that are in earlier stages. So uh, we can often, you know, I have quite a few um, startups that I speak to kind of on an ad hoc basis. Um, you know, I guess a mentoring type type role. I'm formally engaged with a group called Energy Lab as a mentor there um, to help, uh, you know, it's a kind of incubator of sorts um, that, that helps drive and scale and been some, some great businesses that have come up through their scale-up programs um, and incubator programs, some incredibly well-known ones now in the Australian market. Um, uh, so I, I, I help out there often just on ad hoc basis, reaching out to people, um, you know, because even if it's not a stage where we might be able to invest in a business, we can often help with networking. We might have one of our portfolio that can be a customer of that business, might be able to run a pilot program through the business. There's a, a whole suite of ways that we can help grow a business other than necessarily, you know, just investing in them. Um, so that, that's one area there. And, and often we'll follow businesses on for three or four or five years um, and, and help them in this way and, and potentially um, invest in the end or potentially invest early on. There are times where we will invest earlier, um, where perhaps we see it, it adds um, significant capability or capacity to one of our existing portfolios. Um, you can kind of, you know, merge the technologies or, or businesses together in a sense. Um, uh, or it's an area where, you know, there, it, it is still in um, its relative infancy. It's, it's very needed um, and the technology is necessary and it's proven, um, but it, it hasn't necessarily scaled yet because not everyone's realised the, the, the need for it. Um, so I think, I think the big thing is um, if you are looking for funding, um, reach out to you know, places that you might want investment in because they're, they've got money and they're looking to invest um, and, and connecting the two together isn't always as easy as it should be. So always reach out to people. And yeah, there might be plenty of times where they say, no, it's not quite right for us now or not really what we're doing or, you know, whatever it is. Um, but there is never any harm in just reaching out um, you know, to people. I think the only only piece of advice I'd give is sometimes we get people like spamming 20 people in the company. Um, and then when you see that, you're like, oh, okay, well, you know, they're already speaking to someone else, so I don't need to speak to them. Um, because you kind of assume that, you know, out of those 20, they're speaking to, to someone. So it's, it's better to kind of try and form a relationship with one or two people rather than, um, I think, spamming a, a whole company. Um, uh, and, you know, and I think showing scale, showing where, um, you know, where money can be applied. At the end of the day, investors want to invest money. Um, so if you can show them that with their help, you can actually build something that, you know, really your only limiting factor is funding. Um, that's, you know, that's when you can um, start to get money in. But absolutely never hesitate to reach out to people because even if it's not in investment stages, um, investors might be able to help um, small businesses out in so many other ways. Um, the building networks, finding customers, clients, all the rest of it. Yeah, that's that's really helpful advice. And just wondering, you know, when when you are talking about the next generation of entrepreneurs and these these earlier stage companies, what what excites you the most? We have touched on this a little bit, but what are the what are the next big opportunities, whether it's inside the verticals that you're looking at or or outside of those, you know, without banding around, you know, AI, et cetera, like is there something really specific that you see that excites you today? Um, I think as I, I sort of touched on earlier, I think the entire um, coordination and trading of energy is incredibly exciting. 
um, because it's just something that, you know, it's, it's something we haven't necessarily seen to this extent in the energy markets before. Um, so I find that one incredibly exciting. I find incredibly exciting the, the transition to more electrified houses, more coordinated houses um, when it comes to, you know, and homes when it comes to, to energy use. Um, but I think those are the, those are really the, the two, um, you know, biggest areas. And it's exciting just because there's so much involved in mapping out an entire city and how energy is flowing from into a car, being driven to another part of the city, being back in someone's house, used to open their door, used to, you know, the air conditioning has been turned on two hours earlier to maximise the, you know, minimise the use of electricity while maximising the, the efficiency of the, the heating and cooling. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's all just so interconnected. Um, and, um, you know, but, but I think in, incredibly exciting in um, coming up with, with ways to really manage, to measure it, to manage it, to trade it. Yeah, um, yeah absolutely. And, and do you think that that comes a lot from, from automation as well going forward? You know, I think that sometimes it can be a struggle to, to get people to really care about energy use. Um, you know, there is a socioeconomic sort of um, story behind that as well. Obviously, you know, if it makes up a larger proportion of your outgoings, people do tend to care more. But, you know, do you see that um, that there is this this great move towards automation and potentially that's a, a really exciting area for people to be working on as well? Yeah, I think there's a move towards automation. I've been looking at the energy efficiency space for a long, long time. Um, and it is an area that I think has always you know, struggled to some extent. I mean, some of it's worked. I think particularly when you look at the built environment, that's where you really need energy efficiency. Heat pumps don't work if you don't have a properly, um, you know, insulated building, you know, pieces like the very physical side of it. Just before we start um, start wrapping up, I, I just wanted to ask you about ESG. You know, you're the head of the ESG at, uh, at Quinbrook and um, under your guidance, Quinbrook's low carbon power fund was named Global ESG Fund of the Year uh, by ESG Investing. Um, best ESG infrastructure fund and best ESG energy transition fund as well. I mean, that's that's quite some some accolades there. Particularly, I think that they were awarded relatively shortly after the fund was actually officially launched as well. Um, you know, given your experience in that space, how do you measure and value ESG? Is there something internally that you you guys have have drafted up? Um, any insights that you can give there for for other people around that important space? Yeah. Um, yeah, we've got a massive suite of, of, of tools that we've developed um, sometimes, you know, uh, with experts. So in modern slavery, we've worked with third party experts um, to, to improve um, our kind of tracking and tracing, really to move beyond policy to actually enforcing or trying to enforce change um, in the industry. Um, so sometimes we work with external expert, experts to come up with a, a suite of tools. Um, and we also have a very structured internal system of, of assessment that every time we approve an investment, every time we value an investment, um, every time we report on it, we go through and, and we look at a, a, a massive of ESG aspects to figure out um, where's the risks. I think fundamentally, though, it's how you look at ESG and um, it's very outdated to think of ESG as being, well, you get returns or you, you get ESG. You do the right thing or you make money and they're seen as being polar opposites. Um, and that is, 
you know, the only way to put it is that it's incredibly outdated and a short-sighted way of looking at ESG. Um, ESG is there to protect capital and to grow capital. If by doing something that is good socially or environmentally or governance-wise is seen as depleting money, you're not looking far enough ahead. You're not looking at the reputational impacts potentially that those decisions might have. You're not looking at the impact in 10 or 20 years' time when you're going to be looking to sell or, or someone's going to be holding your asset and is going to be including that in the valuation when they buy it from you or, or your business. Um, and I think that's the that's fundamental to what we do is that ESG is, is not a, a sideshow. It's not um, a marketing tool. Um, it's, it's not something we do just, you know, to feel good. Um, it is there to protect our investor capital over the long run and it's there to grow our investor capital over the long run. Um, and, and every time that you're doing something, whether it's, it's choosing, um, you know, looking at who your construction team is going to be, what cultural impacts might you have, uh, how are you working with, with local um, Indigenous groups, uh, how are you, you know, trying to come up with, with strategies that can help the local community have greater access to energy, um, you know, where are you looking for modern slavery in your supply chains, um, you know, or, or other issues and, and how, you, how are you using the capital that you have a responsibility to allocate um, you know, to, to push for agendas that align, um, you know, with the United uh, Nations Sustainable Development Goals and, and other general ESG factors. Um, so I think that's the that's the biggest takeaway. Yes, we've got, you know, as I said, we've got a suite of tools that, uh, you know, that we use and training and a whole host of other things. But fundamentally, it's it's the culture. It's, um, I, you know, are, are people believing that by doing ESG, they are, um, not just kind of doing something that's nice and a marketing tool, but is, is fundamentally important to that business and the growth of that business over the long term. And I think that's a big shift that we're going to increasingly see, um, as well as increasing regulation, which is, is coming out of Europe, the SEC and others, um, just, you know, increasing look at, right, how do we, how do we get behind the greenwashing and the, the, the green wishing, as I saw someone call it, uh, and the claims, and, and actually start to really report on this and be able to measure this in a, in a way meaningful and, and that's the difficulty isn't it is really measuring something you know that sits under the umbrella of esg so you mentioned there for example the un sdgs that's that's really your are they sort of your go-to benchmark in that space um oh look it's it's challenging to benchmark against them do we do we compare do we benchmark in a sense do we see where our assets align with them and make sure that we're supporting them absolutely right and some of them are so fundamental to what we do you know uh i guess energy poverty um or alleviating that uh you know climate action um sustainable cities innovation um you know there there's kind of most of them you know in one way or another um we we fundamentally align within a lot of our our um portfolio companies water stress, you know, all, the, all those other areas, it's actually life on water and life on land, but, um, you know, water stress is, is one of the big areas that we look at. Um, so yes, we, you know, we do, we do look to the, to the UN SDGs, um, but to be honest, we, um, we really look at the, the nitty gritty of what's our impact on the ground, how are we impacting the land, people, you know, in the community or the landowners, how can we provide jobs? That's a huge one right now. How can we create jobs in rural and regional environments? often in um, towns that might have been subject to decarbonising from coal um, and therefore have suffered a loss of jobs. Um, you know, how can we actually be building new infrastructure in those communities to bring jobs back um, to those areas? Um, how can we provide training, um, you know, to groups? There's a, there's a huge amount of stuff um, that's covered, as well as all of your environmental risks and, and a whole host of, um, you know, uh, other bits and pieces 
Um, but uh, and it differs depending on on where you are in the world and, and what people are focused on or what the areas of problems are on, on what your benchmarks are and what you're really focused on for each project. Right. Yeah, it's really interesting what you're saying there, particularly, you know, I've just had a conversation in regards to some regional hubs and and changes that, you know, a large coal um, based area and, and, and the changes that are going on there and, and the support that they're getting for that transition as well. Um, mm -hmm. We're just going to jump into our WhatsApp section. So WhatsApp is just a, a rapid response. Um, so one sentence um, yep. in response to the questions that I'm going to ask you. Yep. Great. Okay. So, Anne, uh, thank you. First question is, who is leading the energy transition? Uh, can I say Europe? I'll, I'll give it to our entire continent. Europe and UK. We'll give it to it can be a, It can be a country, a company, a geography. <laughs> that's That's fine. No, no problem. Um, what's your number one motivation? Oh, am I allowed to say fun? It is. I mean, yeah, it's we want to make this exciting, right? I think fun's a great one. Incredibly exciting and incredibly um, fun. So it's, it's yeah. That's the, the yeah. saying, you know, the, you never work a day in your life if you if you enjoy what you're doing. So that's, that's great. Um, and just the final question, anything I should have asked you but didn't? Oh, I think you, you got it. Uh, you got a lot of the bases covered. I can't actually think of anything. So I'll say, no, there's nothing. Great. No worries. <laughs> Perfect. Well, that's, that's good to know. Look, Anne, it's been really insightful having you on the on the call. And always, it's so great to catch up with you. I, I find what you're doing really exciting um, in the space. Uh, you know, a large um, asset infrastructure manager with billions of dollars under, under management that's really leading the charge in the energy transition and looking at it so holistically. Well, thank, yeah, thanks for um, thanks for having me join, and uh, and can't wait to hear more um, of the other uh, speakers and, and podcasts that you've uh, that you've got going on as well. Wonderful to speak to you. Fantastic, thanks, Anne. Anne Foster from from Quinbrook. Um, thanks for your time. Thanks, Mitch.